Good morning. My name is Austin Tumas. I'm the student pastor here at Ridgecrest. For those of you that uh, have not had the privilege of meeting, um, but I am super excited um, to be bringing the word to you guys this morning. Pastor Mark is um, officiating a wedding out of town later this afternoon, so I have the honor and the privilege of uh, opening up God's word before us this morning. So, if you've got your Bibles with you this morning, go ahead and turn to Revelation chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 8 through 11. We're going to be continuing the series that we've been in for the past few weeks titled Grading the Church. And we've, uh, over the past few weeks, been, been journeying through uh, these first three chapters of the, the book of Revelation. And in these chapters, as we've said in past weeks, Jesus Christ himself speaks to seven churches and he evaluates their, their faithfulness, and, and he talks about their effectiveness as the church. Now, some of the churches, as, we've, uh, as we're going to see, man, they're doing a great job. They're doing a phenomenal job. And to those churches, Jesus encourages them. Jesus uh, charges them to keep up the good work. Other churches, however, we see that they have begun to drift off course. While, while they may have been doing a, a lot of things that were right and, and good, as Jesus points out and is, is quick to recognize, they've been negligent in other areas. While you know they've been, been doing a, a lot of things that were right, we see that their priorities had gradually gotten out of order. They had lost focus on their main purpose. They had become distracted from what Jesus had called them to do. And we saw this last week as, as we looked at Jesus' words to the church in Ephesus. Jesus told them that, man, their ministries looked great. Jesus gives them a high five and, and affirms that, that they're doing an awesome job reaching people for the gospel. And Jesus even applauds them and says that no opposition and or no op difficulties that they have faced seem to stop them. But instead, despite these hindrances, they continue to press on. They continue to toil, and they patiently endure all the more in hopes that this church might reach more people to Jesus. And this church in Ephesus seems like they have it all together. They seem to be on fire for Jesus. They seem to be passionately serving him in their community. But Jesus tells them in verse 4 of chapter 2, he says, I have this against you that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. You have abandoned the love that you had at first. We see that this church in Ephesus had abandoned Jesus. They had, had lost their love for him. They had got so caught up in, in making their church the best church around with all of these great ministries, these, these great community outreach events, that their eyes gradually fell off Jesus. And, and their eyes begin to gravitate more towards their own success. Pride began to set in. And instead of making much of Jesus' name, they began to use their church and, it, and its success to make much of, of their name. And for this, we see that Jesus rebukes them. In our passage this morning, though, Jesus contrasts this church in Ephesus that was successful and alluring and, and glamorous on the outside but yet nearly dead on the inside, he compares this with the church in Smyrna. That from all outside appearances, man, it looks dead. It looks broken down. And it looks like it is rapidly depleting. 
Yet on the inside, Jesus tells us that this church is filled with life. This church is filled with, with passion, and this church is filled with joy. And Jesus says, in this church, I am well pleased. We can learn so much from this little church, and I pray that this morning that we would follow their example. And we would draw strength from them as we seek to daily live for Jesus as we take up our cross. So, Revelations 2, chapter 8 through 11 says this. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. But be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Let's pray. Father God, we, we look to you this morning. God, we ask that you would open up our eyes to see the beauty of the gospel that you would open up our eyes to see the beauty and the worth of Christ, and that, God, having seen that, we would lay our lives down in full surrender before you. So in Jesus' name we pray, and everybody said, amen. So before we can really understand Jesus' words to the church in Smyrna and, and apply them to our lives, we need to first understand a little bit more about the culture and the way of life in the city of Smyrna. You see, Smyrna was a large city. And it was 35 miles north of Ephesus. And it, and it sat alongside the Mediterranean Sea uh, so that it had a great harbor. It had an, an awesome port, which made it a regular trading post. It, it made it a very popular travel route during Jesus' day. And because of this, we see that Smyrna was a city that was booming with commerce. Because of this, Smyrna was, was thriving, and it was a growing city. They were seen as a city of wealth, a city of prestige and power. And not only were their schools and their education the best around and the most advanced, their architecture was extravagant. Like this, this city was so wealthy that their buildings towered over all of the other cities at the time. Their construction was gaudy. Like there were huge columns everywhere, porticos on, on the top of, of buildings Fancy architecture was, was throughout the entire city. And because of their wealth, they had all the access to gold that they wanted. So they infused it into everything. Uh, you, you couldn't walk throughout the city without seeing gold in, infused in, into the columns and the trim on these awesome buildings. They had more money than they knew what to do with. And between the gold of the city and the, the crystal blue ocean that set off in the distance, imagine just the shimmer that everything had. Imagine how, how everywhere you looked, things would almost glisten. One historian wrote that Smyrna was the most beautiful city under the sun. I'm telling you, I might, I might change my plans uh, to go to Myrtle Beach over the summer, check out uh, how much tickets cost to, to go over to Europe and uh, maybe redo our family's plans this summer. Um, but being the thriving city that it was, being this growing city, people from all over the world came to live there. People from all over came to study there, which made it one of the most religiously diverse cities at the time. 
pagan worship was extremely prominent in the city. Temples to Greek gods were placed throughout the city. Statues lined the streets. But Smyrna also had close ties with Rome and was considered to be Rome's most faithful and long-standing ally. Therefore, many of the people in Smyrna joined the Romans in, in worshiping the Roman emperor. Many of these people in Smyrna joined the Romans in declaring that Caesar was God, that Caesar was king, and Caesar was Lord. And to disagree or profess otherwise was seen as treason against Rome. To disagree could be deserving of death. And as you can imagine, this was a pretty hostile environment for Christians and the church who believed and were boldly proclaiming that Jesus was king and that he alone was Lord. But it was especially dangerous to be a follower of Jesus in Smyrna because there in the city was, was a temple that had been built to honor Tiberius Caesar. And Tiberius Caesar was, was the Roman emperor that reigned in Rome when Jesus was crucified. So no doubt, think with me for a minute, these individuals, these Romans in Smyrna, remembered how Jesus had disrespected Tiberius Caesar. They, they remembered how Jesus had declared that he was the king of the Jews. And they were going to see to it now that Jesus' followers did not disrespect the current Caesar, yes, but that they also didn't disrespect the memory of Tiberius Caesar by pledging their allegiance to Jesus. Therefore, they made it their prerogative and their mission to get rid of any and all Christians in Smyrna. So you think, like, man, these, these Christians in Smyrna, they've got it rough. It gets worse. If this wasn't troublesome enough for Christians that lived in the city, there was also a strong Jewish presence in the city. As many of, of you know, the Jews had despised Jesus. In fact, they were the ones that led Jesus to his death. So it's no surprise then that the Jews also despise Jesus' followers. Over and over and over and over again throughout the New Testament, we read about how the Jews uh, persecuted Christians, how they imprisoned them and beat them and tortured them for their faith in Jesus. It was even by uh, Jewish hands that we have the first martyr of our Christian faith. We see that the Jews stoned and eventually killed Stephen. Jews did not like Christians. And there's no doubt that this same kind of persecution continued to take place against the Christians in Smyrna. All right, now, for those of y'all that don't know, I'm a Tar Heel fan. That's right, that's right. All right, now, I know that we are in Duke country here in Durham. I, d I know that we're in, in, in Duke country, so us Carolina fans and even state fans, we're the minority. But it, it never fails, though. A new student will come to church on, on a Wednesday night, and I'll go out of my way uh, to meet the student. I'll get to know the student. I'll ask them where they go to school, uh, who invited them to church, what they enjoy doing, what kind of hobbies uh, they have, what, what sports they play, etc. And after, after coming for a few weeks and interacting with them multiple times, you know, I feel, I feel like I know this student pretty well. Like, I, I feel like I, I, I know them uh, to a pretty good degree. But then, on, on a random Wednesday night, out of the blue, they walk in wearing no other than a Tar Heel t-shirt. And y'all, like, my mind is instantly blown. So I go up to them, like, way too excited, way too excited. And I'm like, bro, I had no clue that you were a Carolina fan. Like, did you know that I'm a Tar Heel fan too? 
Like, I, I always knew that, that I liked you and uh, that we got along great, but did we just become best friends? You know, we, we've all had moments like this with someone where after knowing them for a while, you finally realize that you both have something in common and that only makes you closer friends. Well, you see, the Jews and the Romans that lived in Smyrna, they had the same thing happen to them. Even though they disagreed, even though they didn't necessarily see eye to eye on, on various things, they discovered that they had one thing in common. They discovered that one thing um, they, could, they could both agree on, and that was this. They hated Christians. They hated Christians. So what they did was they, they teamed up to persecute these Christians. They joined forces to rid Smyrna of any kind of Christian presence. Smyrna, to, to, to say the least, was an extremely hostile and dangerous environment to be a follower of Christ. These believers, this church, had been greatly persecuted. They were going through some serious suffering. And it's in this context that John writes to the church in Smyrna. John, John begins by saying in verse 8 that these are the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. You see, from the very beginning, Jesus, or John makes the, the believers in Smyrna full aware that these are not his words. These are not his words. He wants them to realize that this is not his message. But instead, these are the very words of Jesus Christ. And John is simply the messenger. He is relaying and passing these words from Christ onto them. But before John shares his message from Jesus with them, he reminds them who this Jesus is. Because we all tend to forget who our God is. And John knows that, that, that the only way to remain faithful, the only way to persevere through any kind of persecution on account of our faith is to fix our eyes on Jesus and to understand who he really is. So my first point this morning is this. When we suffer for Christ, we must look to and worship our sovereign, resurrected, and glorified Savior, Jesus Christ. We see that, that first John describes Jesus as the first in verse 8. John says, listen, Jesus is the eternal one. He was never created. He was never born. There, was, there has never been a time that Jesus has not existed. And John even, even tells us in his gospel that Jesus was with God in the beginning, alluding to the fact that Jesus is, is not only preeminent, but that Jesus is divine. Jesus is the very Son of God for all of eternity's past has enjoyed communion and fellowship with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. Yet, not only is Jesus the first, John says that he's the last. Jesus will have the last word because as Ephesians 1 says in verse 20 through 22, God seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and made him head over all things. All uh, authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. He reigns. He rules over all things. Everything is under his sovereign rule and power. And the New Testament says over and over again that all things are subdued under his feet. Because, as John writes, and he goes on to say that Jesus died 
and came to life. Jesus died and came to life. Here John reminds the church in Smyrna of the good news of the gospel. And he points them to the new life and the victory that they have in Christ. You see, John wants them to to remember that before Jesus, they and we all were dead in our sin. They and we all have turned our backs on God. Only to to disobey Him and rebel against His good and life-giving commands to do what is right in our own eyes. And because of this, because of our sin, we are under God's righteous and holy wrath. But check this out. Because of God's grace, because of the great measure of God's kindness and love towards us, instead of choosing to unleash condemnation and immediately judge the world for their rebellion against him, God chose to pour out redemption. God chose to save. God chose to restore the very ones that had wronged him back to himself by sending Jesus Christ, his only son, to stand in their place. So Jesus came to this earth, and he he lived a perfect life, something that you and I could never, ever, ever begin to do, no matter how hard we try. Jesus came to this earth and measured up to every single one of God's standards. He obeyed God in every way, and throughout the course of his life, not once did he sin. Yet even though he deserved it in no way whatsoever, he willingly died in the place of sinners. He walked the road to Calvary and was nailed to a criminal's cross. And as he hung there on the cross, God unleashed the fullness of his wrath that was reserved for us, for man, because of our sin. God unleashed the fullness of his wrath that was reserved for us on him. And God made him pay for the price and the penalty of our sin. Until Jesus cried out moments before his death, it is finished. It's finished. The punishment was our, for our sin was, was paid for once and for all. The wrath of God had been completely satisfied. The, the work for our redemption was done. Our salvation was won. And to prove this, three days later, God victoriously raised Jesus up. God resurrected Jesus from the grave, and Jesus rose back from the dead. Because here's the the reality of the cross. Yours and my sin, no matter how dark, no matter how messed up or, or wicked or terrible it may be, it stands no chance before the power of the blood of Jesus. Stands no chance. His sacrifice was and is more than enough to save us from our sin. And get this, For those who who respond to Jesus in faith, those who trust in Jesus as their Savior, instead of receiving the condemnation and judgment that they rightfully deserve, they are now given new and eternal life. They are now invited into a personal relationship with God where they can know Him and enjoy His presence from now until forever. While their sin once separated them from God as sinners through faith in Christ. These Smyrnans are are now adopted into God's family. They are called his children. They are given a heavenly inheritance that no one can take away, that, that nothing can remove. John knew that 
that when we fix our eyes on Jesus and, and worship him, our sovereign, our in control, our resurrected, our glorified Savior, Jesus Christ, it puts our trials into their proper perspective. As we, as we look to Jesus, we will quickly, quickly realize that our sufferings are but light momentary afflictions, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Now, now, Paul here is not discrediting our difficulties in any way. He's not saying that the hardships that we face are easy or, or light. No, Paul recognizes that a lot of us are going through some extremely heavy things. That there are uh, some of you even here this morning that are weighed down by the circumstances of life to the point that, I mean, you don't know how to handle it. You don't know what to do anymore. But Paul's plea to us is this, that we would look up, that we would look up. Paul says, look to Christ. In him we are more than conquerors, regardless of how difficult, regardless of how hard and how trying the circumstances of this life may be. They are nothing compared to the victory that we have in Christ. They are nothing compared to the eternity that awaits us as his followers. So fix your eyes on Jesus. We see that John finishes up his introduction to the believers in Smyrna and then shares Jesus' words to them. And, and Jesus says in verse 9, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. My second point this morning is this. To be spiritually rich, you must treasure Christ. To be spiritually rich, you must treasure Christ. As we said, this, this church in Smyrna had been through it. Followers of Christ had been identified throughout the city. Targets were placed on their backs. They were mocked. They were ridiculed. They were publicly shamed. Christians weren't allowed to go to various parts of the cities. Um, they, they weren't allowed to participate in various events. Many local businesses had even prohibited them from shopping in their stores. And we see that, that many Christians throughout the city were either fired or dismissed from their jobs. Christians were being falsely accused. They were being misrepresented. They were being put in prison with, with no intention of ever giving them a fair trial. Some were beaten and others were even put to death. It was almost, almost like Christians had no rights at all in Smyrna. And because of this mistreatment, because of, of this persecution that they had faced, Jesus acknowledges in our text that they are physically poor. They are poverty-stricken. You see, it, it costs these Christians to take a stand for Jesus. They had to pay a price to follow him. Many of them had lost everything to follow Jesus. Yet despite whatever opposition they faced, they continued to live for Jesus. They continued to serve him. They continued to share the good news of the gospel, even though they knew that it could get them killed, because they loved Jesus more than life itself. Jesus was their ultimate treasure. He was better than anything that this life had to offer. This is the kind of follower that Jesus Christ is after. My fear for the, for the church in America is, is that it doesn't cost us anything to follow Jesus. It's, it's easy to say that we're Christians in America without having to, to make any kind of real sacrifice going forward. We, we never really have to cut ties with the world, which has, has led many people in the church to walk this fine line where we try to benefit from both sides. 
See, on one hand, we try to we try to put our foot over here in the world. And we see Jesus over there and we try to we try to put our other foot over there. I'm not gonna spread my legs any farther than that. My pants might rip. A lot of us try to say yes to the things of the world while also saying yes to the things of Jesus. Many of us so desperately want to look like the world while also looking like a follower of Christ. And we're not interested in joining one side exclusively, one way or the other. I tell our students all the time, it's impossible. It's impossible to live for the world and to live for Jesus at the same time. You cannot serve both the world and Jesus simultaneously. You must pick which side you're going to follow. You must serve one side or the other. Jesus is not interested in, in having a people follow him one day a week. Jesus is not interested in us showing up on Sunday mornings to worship and sing about him if we're not going to live for him the rest of the week. Jesus doesn't want just a part of us. He wants all of us. He wants every part of your life. Jesus wants followers that are all in, followers that are fully committed with their minds made up that they are going to joyfully live for him in every situation of life, even when it's not easy, even when it, when it costs them and they have to sacrifice everything because he is their treasure and he is worth it. I want to ask you this morning, are you living this way? Does that describe your devotion to Christ? If so, Jesus says that you should, you should not at all be surprised when you are persecuted for your faith. Jesus told his disciples in John 15 um, that his followers would be hated and would experience persecution just as he did. But we can, we can rest assured that while the world may leave us broken and, and afflicted, while our persecution may leave us physically poor and, and impoverished, in Christ, we are spiritually rich. We are spiritually rich. Now, remember how we said that Smyrna was extremely wealthy? They had more money than they, they knew what to do with, so much so that gold was infused into their architecture, into everything throughout the whole city. Jesus encourages this poverty-stricken church that although the people of Smyrna seem to have a lot of bling, although they seem to be the most wealthy city around, they're not the rich ones. Jesus says that these suffering, downtrodden believers, they're the rich ones. The people of Smyrna had, had taken pride in themselves. They had stored up earthly riches that didn't matter, that got them nowhere in eternity. But these persecuted believers had placed their faith in Jesus, and they had, be, had been given new life in Christ. And one day, just as they were continuing to acknowledge Jesus before the world before them, Jesus would likewise acknowledge them before the Father, and they would enter in to receive this earthly, this heavenly inheritance and would be with Jesus for the rest of eternity. While all physical signs may have pointed to a church that was poor and beat up and dilapidating, Jesus assures them that they are spiritually wealthy, that they are rich because they have treasured Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Is your hope in the, in the fleeting riches of this world? Or is your hope in Christ? I'll tell you what, what doesn't happen. No one ever gets to heaven and, and wishes that they would have stored up more treasure on this earth. No one ever gets to heaven and, and wishes, man, I wish I had that brand new 18 uh, Camaro. That would, just, that would be awesome. 
No one ever gets to heaven and wishes that they would have lived more for the world. No. Everyone gets to heaven and wishes that they would have treasured Christ more and lived for Jesus more during their time on earth because Jesus is all that matters in eternity. He's all that matters. Two billion years from now, Jesus is going to be all that matters. Is your hope in the momentary riches of this world that are going to one day pass away, or is your hope in the eternal Christ? My third point this morning is this. We must persevere to receive the crown of life. You know, it's funny. Uh, so many people think that the Christian life is like this Staples easy button. How many of y'all have seen this, this button by show of hands? Good many of y'all? All right, so now Staples has done a great job marketing this button. They'll, they'll tell you that, that they, can, they can cover all of your paper, paper needs. They convince you with this button that, that they can supply all of, of your office supplies. They've got you covered. But they've taken it one step further to say that, you know what, you can buy this button and it will help you with your everyday challenges. When you're in a frustrating situation, when you can't find the car keys, when you can't find a solution to a problem, all you have to do is go up and hit this easy button. All you have to do is hit this easy button, and once you hit it, Staples says that you'll realize that this difficult task that was before you, it was just easy. It, it really wasn't that difficult. There was nothing to it. And when you hit this button, you'll be given the motivation to push through to the end. Now, I, I think a, a lot of people think that following Jesus is like that, e that easy button. They think that when you accept Christ as your Savior, life gets easy all of a sudden. Jesus makes all of our troubles disappear. All our worry, worries instantly vanish, and difficulties no longer afflict us. I'll tell you this morning, this could not be farther from the truth. I would, I would argue that, that when you follow Jesus, yes, your life is more meaningful. Yes, your life is more joyful than ever before. But at the same time, it gets harder. It gets harder. And Jesus' message to the church in Smyrna is proof of that. Jesus tells these tired yet faithful believers in verse 10, you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. Just when they thought that they couldn't take it anymore, just when uh, they thought that that their suffering might be done. Man, they've got this word from Jesus. He's here to give us good news. Jesus tells them, suffering is coming. More persecution is on its way. Things are, are not going to get better for you for a while, but things are getting ready to be exponentially worse. And for some of you here this morning, this is the very thing that has kept you from surrendering your life completely to Jesus. You, you know that when you begin to faithfully and boldly live for Jesus in all that you do, persecution is going to follow. Your family might begin to mock you. Your friends might shun you. You'll, be, you'll become the laughingstock of everyone at your job. But check out what Jesus tells these believers at Smyrna and what he tells us simultaneously. He says this in verse 10, Do not fear. Do not fear. Don't be afraid, but be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of of life. I'll give you the crown of life. You can, you can hear Jesus' encouragement and Jesus' plea 
with them. Jesus is saying, keep your eyes right here. Keep your eyes fixed on me. Keep treasuring me. Keep pursuing me. Push through this because if you remain faithful, if you continue to persevere, even though man may ridicule you, though man may threaten your life, though man may even take your life, your soul is secure in my hands. You are safe with me. And I love this. Jesus goes on to say, I will give you the crown of life. What a a beautiful picture here. When Jesus' followers, those who have have lived a faithful life loving and, and serving Jesus, when they pass on from this life into eternity, Jesus tells us he's waiting for us. And he will personally give us the victor's crown of eternal life. He'll, he'll have us get down on one knee, and he'll put a crown on our head. And he will personally welcome us into heaven and invite us to be with him in the fullness of his presence where we can forever bask in his goodness and his grace. Jesus concludes his message to the church in Smyrna in verse 11 by saying, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. That is God's final judgment. So whether you realize it or or not this morning, there will come a time for us all when we will stand before the judgment seat of God. There will come a time when, when we will all stand before God and give account for our lives. And truth be told, every breath that we take is one step closer to this reality. Every day that passes is one step closer to that moment. Many, the Bible says, will will stand before God and will be judged guilty for their sin because they didn't have faith in Christ, because they weren't devoted to Christ. While they may have lived it up in this life, while they may have driven a 2018 Camaro, while they may have been successful and, and and wealthy, Jesus says that theirs is now eternal death. They will be separated from God, and they will endure God's wrath forever. Jesus says, though, that those who persevere in their faith, those who who boldly live for him and remain faithful until the end, they will stand before God, and the craziest thing's going to happen. God's going to declare us innocent. God's going to judge us not guilty because we stand in the shadow of the cross. Jesus' blood has already dealt with and for forgiven our sin. The price has, has already been paid. And Jesus encourages these Smyrnan believers that while their earthly lives may have been plagued with ridicule and, and hardship and physical suffering, eternal life and eternal joy is theirs for all of eternity. For all of eternity. And then, when in his presence, they will surely exclaim all the more, Jesus is worth it. Jesus is worth it. Maybe this morning, having, having looked at this, this church in Smyrna, some of you realize that your faith doesn't quite look like theirs. You might, you might realize, you know, man, I haven't been treasuring Christ. I haven't been living for Jesus. And I don't, I don't think my life has, has been radically changed by the good news of the gospel. And, and no doubt... I don't feel like I would ever even experience suffering or ridicule on behalf of my faith because my life looks an awfully lot like the world. My plea with you this morning is this. 
Place your faith entirely in Jesus. Completely surrender your heart and your life to him. Lay everything down at his feet. I can tell you that without a doubt, there is more to gain in following Jesus than there is to gain from anything else in this life. So commit your life to following Jesus. You will not regret it, even in the face of persecution or possible death, because Jesus is faithful. He will never fail you. He will never let you down. Let's be, let's be a people. Let's be a church, Ridgecrest, that faithfully, joyfully, and boldly serves Jesus, no matter the cost. Let's pray. Father God, we, we thank you that in your hands are eternal life. God, that you have paid the price for our sin at Calvary. And God, you call us to follow you without reserve. You call us to follow you and live for you no matter the cost. God, I pray that we would do that, that we would lay our lives down before you as an offering. God, not that you would make much out of our, our church or that you would make much out of our name, but God, that your name would be glorified, that your name would be lifted up. God, we ask that, that you would encourage us, for those of us that are, that are uh, suffering, for those of us that have persecution looming before us, God, that one day, if we persevere through that, you will give us the victor's crown. We will be with you for all of eternity. Jesus, may we treasure and faithfully live for you. It's in your name we pray, and everybody said, amen.